Well, good evening. As you probably know, Toby has taken a few weeks off, and he asked me to fill in for him tonight. Uh, we do have a, a special treat for us, as Charles has already mentioned tonight. Uh, the singing group uh, uh, from Pepperdine, uh, one by one, is going to be performing as soon as we're done with worship. So as soon as we can move the uh, the podium out of the way, they'll be starting. So we hope you can stay for that. Tonight, I would like to talk about the greatest sermon ever preached. How do you know when you've heard a great sermon? What is it that separates a great sermon from just a pretty good sermon? Well, well, I gave that a little bit of thought, and I think there's several things that make a sermon really great. One thing about a great sermon is it really grabs your attention. Another thing about a great sermon is I believe it includes stories and, and word pictures that can help you really grasp what the preacher is trying to say. Uh, a great sermon reminds you of the truths that can be found in God's word. A great sermon helps you realize that you need to make changes in your life and motivates you to make those changes. What, what do you think was the greatest sermon ever preached? I bet you're a step ahead of me. I think the greatest sermon ever preached was the one that Jesus Christ preached to his followers. Am I? Oh, I need the flipper. Thank you. This is apparently not a great sermon. <laughs> but thankfully, I'm not talking about a sermon I preached. I'm talking about the one Jesus preached to his followers on the side of a mountain 2,000 years ago. You know the one I'm talking about. It's, in, it's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You know, there, there were a lot of... Uh, no, not yet. There were a lot of great uh, speeches given throughout the years. Um, I'm thinking of ones like uh, Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. Or when Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. Or uh, remember when Winston Churchill was rallying his people to fight against the Nazis and, and he said, we will fight them on the beaches. I can't do a good impersonation, but you remember that. Well, you may not remember that speech, but you've probably heard it. Um, a lot of the speeches we think of as being really great speeches were given because of the need to fight against something or fight for something. Uh, for instance, King's speech was fighting against racial inequality. Um, Patrick Henry's speech was, uh, was fighting against the tyranny of Great Britain. Uh, and then Churchill's speech was, was fighting against the Nazis and, and trying to get his people to, to want to join him in that, that fight. And yet here is Jesus' sermon given 2,000 years ago to that crowd on the side of the mountain, I think maybe the greatest speech or sermon ever given, and it's not about fighting. It, it's, it's about being submissive. It's about forgiving. It's about meekness. You've probably read this sermon many times. You, you've probably studied it in Bible classes, probably heard sermons about it. And maybe it's so familiar for you that right about now, You've already kind of switched into autopilot mode, and you're thinking, well, I've heard all this before. I'm just going to wait till one by one sings, then I'm going to wake up, you know. Well, I encourage you to listen with fresh ears, because you might just hear something that maybe you haven't heard it before, maybe a little bit shocking. I heard about a literature professor at Texas A&M University who, I think she was a Christian, 
Anyway, she, she assigned to her students to read the Sermon on the Mount and then write a response paper to it. Now, a lot of these students had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, or if they had heard of it, most of them had not ever read it. So they didn't come into this assignment with any kind of preconceived notion about what the Sermon on the Mount was about. Or if they had any bias at all, it was probably more like, well, it's, you know, it's just a good collection of nice things to live by, taught by some guy, you know, a long time ago. So what do you think was the response and reaction to these students when they actually read it and had to write this response paper? Well, interestingly enough, they all hated it. Let me read you some of the responses they said. The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it's a sin. Another student said, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. And no one's perfect. A third student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. So what did this professor think about all these responses? She said, well, I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears. Just as it was in the first century. For me, somehow that validates its significance. In this sermon, Jesus calls us to follow a way of life that is not easy. But he promises amazing results. So, open your Bibles or your iPhones. I like the way Sonny talked about that. If you have an analog version of the word, open that up. Or a digital version, either one. Open it up to Matthew 5. We're just going to flip through these, these uh, chapters here um, uh, and just see what Jesus had to say to this crowd 2,000 years ago. Again, we, we were not going to cover everything. We need to save time for one by one. But let's just see if we can hit some of the highlights. Is this thing on? Okay, flip. The, there we go. You may have to flip it for me. I'll just beep every time you need to flip. Okay, at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus shared some secrets to living a blessed life. Many of those who heard his advice probably thought that it, uh, it didn't make much sense. You know, it, his instructions seemed kind of backwards then. I think to many people today, they still seem kind of strange. So here's a few examples of the radical wisdom that Jesus shared. You want to go to heaven? You want to be a part of God's kingdom? Verse 3, don't be boastful and proud. Be completely dependent on God. Be fully aware that what you're wearing is spiritual rags. You need to be humble. You need to be poor in spirit. Do you want to inherit the earth? Verse 5, don't be pushy. Be meek. And by the way, meekness is not the same as weakness. Remember, Jesus and, Ma- and Moses were both described as being meek, and nobody ever accused them of being weak. Jesus told us to live a truly righteous life, verse 7 and following. He said, you need to be merciful. You need to be pure in heart. You need to be peacemakers. And then in verse 10, when you're persecuted because of living that righteous life, don't be surprised. You need to just 
be thankful. And, and keep in mind that you've got a, a reward waiting for you in heaven. Let's see if this works now. This is not working. Okay, flip. Okay, salt and light. Um, okay, verse 13. Jesus then tells his followers they need to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He tells them not to hide their lights. But, you know, think about it. If the Spirit of God is living in you, if you are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, then you're not going to be able to hide your light, are you? Go ahead and flip this slide, please. I like what John Wesley said. Your holiness makes you as conspicuous as the sun in the sky. You cannot hide your Christian character. When you exercise yourself in a labor of love, in any kind of good work, you are observed. We may as well try to hide a city as to hide a Christian. Okay, next. As we've already mentioned, most of those who heard Jesus in this sermon probably thought his teaching was pretty radical. They might have been confused and thought he was telling them, look, you don't need to worry about the law of Moses anymore. You don't need to pay attention to the writings of the prophets. But he wasn't saying that. In fact, in verse 17 he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in verse 20, he gets to what I think is the central theme of this sermon. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, can you imagine how that must have made that crowd feel? Hang on a second. The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the most religious people we know. If they're not going to make it to heaven, well, how can I make it into heaven? But Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, didn't he? They made an outward show of their religion, but it did not affect their hearts. They made sure to follow all the traditions that they had developed, but their characters were unaffected. The Pharisees taught that righteousness was something that could be measured by looking at how much you gave and and how much you fasted and, and, and how good your prayers were. Jesus warned the people not to be like them. He said, don't just give lip service to following God. Don't be a Sunday-only Christian. In Matthew 15, verse 8, he quoted the, the prophet Isaiah when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. So I want us just to look at how he explained what it meant to be a righteous person in a way that went beyond the righteousness of the, the hypocrites, uh, the outward show of religion that the Jews had. It's found in the rest of Chapter 5. Go ahead and advance the slide. And the, the first thing I want to look at is in uh, verse 21. He talked about murder and anger. Beep. Do it again. One more. There we go. Murder and anger. Okay. Um, I'm not going to get angry about this flipper not working. Watch. See how I'll be, remain calm. Okay. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
the Jews kind of had a checklist religion. And one biggie on their checklist was the Ten Commandments. He's, and in the Ten Commandments, it said, don't murder. Okay? So if you were a Jew listening to Jesus in this crowd, you would have said, okay, check. I haven't murdered anybody. I think I'm doing pretty good. But what does Jesus say? He says true righteousness means you're going to get rid of sinful anger and hatred. You're going to get along with your brother and your sister. And here's something that I think is kind of interesting. He tells you to get rid of the sinful anger and hatred. But then, if you read on in that passage, he flips things around and he says, instead of telling you how to deal with your anger, he tells you what to do in case somebody else is angry with you. What does he say there? He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I, I find that amazing. God does want us to worship him, doesn't he? he, he we know he does. The Bible tells us that. And yet... He tells us that our relationship with each other is so important that if you're worshiping God and you remember that somebody's got this beef with you, he wants you to go make that right first, then come back and focus on worshiping him. You remember in 1 John 4.20, we read that if you don't love your brother or your sister, who's made in the image of God, you really don't love God. So you need to stop putting on this outward show of worshiping God until you first make things right with your brother or your sister, with this child of God who's made in his image. Then you can get back to showing love for God. In fact, didn't he say that the best way to show love for God is to to show love for your brother and your sister? Let's advance the slide. Verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That checklist religion for the Jews, don't commit adultery, that's another one of those biggies in the Ten Commandments. Okay, I've never been unfaithful to my wife, check. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Um, How many women have you ogled lately at the swimming pool or jogging down the street? You know, I, I think the best advice for husbands is found in, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, uh, where the Proverbs writer says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Maybe Jesus was thinking about that as he gave this, this command to them. Jesus says here, it's good to remain faithful to your wife. I, God wants you to do that. But it's so much more than just never committing physical adultery against your wife or against your husband. He says you need to be faithful to her with your heart. You need to be faithful to her with your eyes. Next slide, please. Verse 31. The Jews taught, you know, that, that pretty much any reason a guy wanted to get divorced from his wife was okay. As long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. If he did that, he was good. But Jesus says, wait just a second. God hates divorce. That's not the way you need to be acting. If your wife or your husband is unfaithful to you, okay, you can consider divorce as an option. But even then, I want you to remember that 
God hates divorce. His idea is for a man and a woman to be married for life. Don't think of divorce as an easy out. Don't think of divorce as as something easy that you can just fall back on. You know, I, I think God does not like the kind of wedding vows that are becoming all too common today for richer, for poorer, until we both get tired of each other. I mean, I don't know if you've ever actually heard. I think maybe there have been wedding vows that have actually been like that. But that's kind of the attitude a lot of people have today. Uh, that's why there's so many prenuptial agreements written up, because, you know, we know that eh, I'll get tired of you maybe, and then I'll move on to the next one. That's not God's plan. Next slide, please. Verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said, do not um, break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. In that checklist religion the Jews had, Believe it or not, they thought it was okay if you made an oath and you swore by the temple. Guess what? It was okay to break that oath. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, hmm, you had to keep that oath. That is weird logic to me. I don't understand that, but that was their rules. But Jesus says, okay, look, guys, just don't make any oaths at all. Just say what you mean. And, you know, if you're always truthful, then people will know when you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. The only reason you need that crutch of taking an oath is if you're known to be kind of a liar a lot of the time. And then you need to, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I swear on my mother's grave that this is true. You don't need to do that. Just always say what you mean. Next slide. Verse 38, he talks about revenge. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The Jewish law, in the Jewish law, God gave his people a a system of how to deal with uh, problems, how to deal with crimes. Um, and the purpose of it was so that the punishment did not go way beyond what the crime was. We didn't want a great big punishment for a smaller crime. And Jesus was not saying that all that was wrong necessarily for these Jews. What he was saying was he wanted them to go beyond that law and replace it with more of an attitude of being willing to suffer loss rather than causing someone else to suffer. You know, of everything Jesus said in this sermon, I think this one may be the hardest for Americans today to, to follow. Hey, I know my rights. You can't treat me like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you back. Well, Jesus says don't do that. He, he says you need to repay evil with good. And that leads right into the next one that he talks about, and that is, um, he wants us to love our enemies. Verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy. Excuse me, <laughs> that's wrong. He said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wait a second now, Jesus. You want me to love my enemies? That concept was foreign to the Jews. That concept is 
very foreign to us today. Love your enemies? You've got to be kidding. But Jesus gave us a good reason to do it. He said, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, do it so you can be like God. Well, what's God like? Well, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then he goes on and says, if, if you only love those who love you, how are you any different than anybody else? You need to love your enemies because you want to be like your father. And then he wraps up this section by saying, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that's always kind of frightened me a little bit, you know. But if you think about it, if you study, what does the word perfect mean there? He, he doesn't expect us to be sinless. Obviously, he doesn't. That's why he came and died for us. The word perfect there means complete or mature. He's saying you need to be complete. You need to be mature the way your heavenly father is. God loves his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies. He expects you to love your enemies. That's a very hard thing to do, but that's, that's what he expects of you. Okay, let's move on to chapter 6. Take a look at it. The Pharisees practiced their religion for the praise of men, not for the reward of God. Jesus said in verse 1, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. He warned us about the danger of hypocrisy by giving these, giving three examples of different kinds of worship that the Pharisees felt like you could, you could measure your righteousness by these. So we're going to talk about each of these the way Jesus did. First one is giving, starting in verse 2. He said, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Can you just imagine somebody Blowing some trumpets to say, okay, this rich guy is about to give a bunch of money. I cannot imagine that. But, and then in verse 3 he said, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus does want us to give to those in need, doesn't he? But he doesn't want us to make a big show of it. And then in verse 5 he talks about prayer. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now some people think Jesus is condemning public prayer here, and he's I definitely not doing that. Jesus prayed in public many times. His apostles prayed in public. What he's saying here is that you need to have an active private prayer life. And then when you do lead public prayer, don't do it with a lot of pride. Do it with humility. Don't try to be flowery and showy in the words that you use. i got to tell you a story. Um, there was a brother... Uh, that was a member of our church in, in Ponca City when Kimberly and I worshipped there. And he led public prayer often. And when he prayed, he, he was often, he just, he liked to use flowery words and he tried to be very eloquent. And the sad thing is, he did not have a good grasp of the King's English. He, he messed up words a lot. And one time he was praying before a potluck, uh, lunch and, uh, the, the church had just bought this, 
shiny new 30-cup coffee pot, coffee urn. And he was leading the prayer for the meal, and he said, Lord, we thank thee for this fellowship of thy people today gathered in this holy building. And we thank thee for this new coffee urinal. So I, I tell you, not many people drank the coffee that day. Oh, my goodness. So don't be like that. Don't be flowery in the way you pray in public. Just talk the way you talk to in, in normal conversation. And, you know, it helps us understand what you're saying, and God knows what you're saying. So Jesus helped us out here by giving us an example of how to pray. Now, I don't think this prayer was meant by him to be memorized by everybody and, and said over and over again and wrote. You know, a lot of people do that, and I, there's nothing wrong with it. I think what he was doing was more or less giving us an example of how to pray. He talked about things like uh, um, that we should pray for God's will to be done, not ours. We need to confess our sins. We need to uh, pray for our daily physical needs. And then he ends the prayer by reminding us that God won't forgive us unless we're willing to forgive our brothers and sisters. And then in verse 16, he talks about fasting. And again, he said you need to do it in a private way. If you're going to fast, don't go around moaning about how hungry you are and make yourself look miserable. Don't post on Facebook, I'm fasting today. You know, you can expect me to look a lot thinner by the end of the day. Don't do that. This spiritual discipline, if it's going to be any good for you, if it's going to be beneficial to you, it needs to be between you and God. All right, so what? Anytime you read something in the Bible, you need to ask yourself the so what question. How does this apply to me? How does this work itself out in the real world? Well, let me give you a practical example of what Jesus was talking about. You know, there are a lot of servants at Northside. There are a lot of, a lot of you love serving, but you, you like doing it kind of out of the limelight. You don't do it to be seen by men. In fact, when I like taking pictures, as most of you know, when I've got my camera out at some church event, like, say, Wichita War Camp that recently concluded, many of you kind of don't like it when I take a picture of you. Um, uh, some, some of you I've, been, I've seen you, you know, hide your faces. You're not doing it to be seen by people. So you're probably going to shoot me, but I'd like to show you a few pictures here of you serving uh, as servants out of the limelight. Go ahead and advance that. You've probably seen these people serving in the shadows out of the limelight, you know, or maybe you haven't seen them since uh, they're not looking for the limelight. These are some of your brothers and sisters. These are members of this congregation who are doing the works that God prepared for them to do. And they're doing them without any hope that they'll get a pat on the back or that they'll get mentioned in somebody's sermon. All right, next slide, please. In the rest of chapter 6, Jesus focused on what our attitude should be toward material things. He, he starts in verse 19 by talking about where you should store your treasures. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, Jesus was not saying here that it's wrong to possess things. I think more or less he was saying it's wrong to let your things possess you, right? He was saying that the way you possess things is to hold them not tightly but loosely. Be willing to let go of them at any time. What do you think he meant by laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? I think what it meant, what he meant was to use all that we have for the glory of God. I love this quote by Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries to Ecuador who was killed by the natives that he was trying to take the gospel to. You've probably heard this quote before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that quote. All right, let's go on to the next slide. Verse 25, Jesus talked about worry. One more slide. He said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Worry is something that we all are very good at. I love the the list of ten things that Sonny had this morning in his sermon. And I've got a list kind of like that that I looked up on the, the interweb. And here's the top eight things that we worry about. Paying the rent or the mortgage. Our physique. And closely related to our physique is wrinkles, you know, looking older. Job security, debt, savings, our our financial future, and just getting old in general. And you know, as good as Americans have it today, we are very good at worrying. We worry a lot. And at the end of Matthew 6, though, Jesus gives us three good reasons why we should not worry. Number one. Because we are God's children. He says if he takes care of the birds, he takes care of the flowers and the grass, he'll take care of you. Number two reason why we shouldn't worry is it's useless. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Have you ever known someone who worried themselves into living longer? It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, worrying typically is something that can cause you physical problems and probably shorten your life a little bit. And the third reason not to worry, he says, is because of your testimony to unbelievers. He says the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If you react to problems the same way the the non-believers do, what kind of testimony does that give to them? We're all familiar with the way that Jesus wraps up this section about worrying. In verse 33, he says, and let's advance the slide, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, if you will focus on what's most important, and if you'll avoid worrying about, you know, things, God will give you what you need. Next slide, please. You know, I, I wish we had time to cover the rest, but this is a long sermon. Jesus talked about some very important things in, in chapter 7, but we're going to have to save those for another time. Um, but he ends his greatest sermon of all time by encouraging his listeners not to just let his ears go in one ear and out the other, but instead he told them to both listen and do. And I think if he were given this sermon today, he might say, don't be like the guy who 
studied architectural design and learned all about how to build a really sturdy house and then forgot all about what he had read and built his house right on the sand. Not a good idea. I can't believe I found this picture on the Internet. Good grief. I don't know what's wrong with the person that built that house, but anyway, I'm sure they're sorry they did it. You know, lately watching the news from Hawaii, I've been a little surprised that so many people have been building their house next to volcanoes. And I'm not, you know, it's not a laughing matter. They probably thought, well, this is far enough away, you know, I'm I'm good. But uh, look what's happened. Uh, Not a good thing. I kind of thought about asking Charles to lead that old children's song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock, as our imitation song tonight. Uh, But I thought better of it. Uh, But, you know, as I said, every sermon needs to answer the question, so what? Uh, What should I change or do because of what Jesus taught here? Well, remember what we said was the basic theme of this sermon? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't just practice a checklist religion. Your relationship with God needs to affect your heart. Have you built your house on the sand? Have you let the word of God go in one ear and out the other? If you have, I think it's time to repent. It's time to make a change in your life. If there is any way that we can help you tonight, whether it's to put on God in salvation or to uh, in baptism or to repent of your sins or... Ask for the prayers of the church for anything. If there's any way we can help you tonight, we encourage you to come forward while we stand and sing.